Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm particularly grateful to see a lot of young people I know sitting through a series on marriage and relationships. Sometimes you feel like you have to listen to all the marriage stuff. Today is especially for you if you're single. has relevance for the married people as well, but we're going to really look at how you make a wise marital choice. Answering the question, does God tell us if and who to marry? My wife said I could do a one-word sermon, but I want to go a little bit longer than that. So let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would make your word come alive because I believe your word is true and powerful and gives light and leads us into the best life that you've crafted just for us. And so we ask that you would do that, Lord, in spite of me, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read an email that is typical of the kind of emails I receive all of the time. It's by a woman. It's been miserable, Gary. We've only been married for three years, but it has been the worst three years of my life. My husband has just been awful. And what frustrates me so much is that God confirmed that I was supposed to marry him ten times over. And I've had a number of conversations. I think of one woman married not three years, but three decades, only to find out her husband was, frankly, a little bit pathological. And she wasn't just angry with her husband. She was bitter toward God. She says, Gary, I know that God told me to marry him. Why would God tell me to marry such a loser? To those who email me or ask me that, and they say, why would God tell me to marry him? I want to say, Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't. Now, I don't want to freak you singles out talking about two difficult marriages because I've talked to plenty of people who have said marrying their spouse was the best decision they ever made next to becoming a Christian. And some of them are here this morning, all right? When you make a wise marital choice, it can at times feel like heaven on earth. As close as we get to heaven this side of heaven. But a foolish marital choice can lead us to where it feels like hell on earth, which is why I want you to make a supremely wise decision. If you marry people to think about why you made that decision and to know if you're making a wise decision, we have to answer that question. Does God tell us who and if to marry? Now, let's take a step back. How do we answer a question like that? Where do we find our authority? Let's look at where we don't find our authority. We don't find our authority in what we want to be true. It's really hard when we're talking about this because if you want something to be true, it's really hard not to believe it's true. And if you want it to be that God has chosen someone just for you and he's going to bring them along at just the right time, you don't have to apply wisdom. You don't have to seek counsel. You don't have to search them out. You just walk along at 7-Eleven. You spill coffee on each other and boom, you're together. You're making a Hallmark movie and everybody's happy. I, I get why you might want that to be true. But remember, wanting something to be true doesn't make it true. Another authority that doesn't work is because you've always believed something is true doesn't make it true. I I could go my entire life and, and believe a lie. And just because maybe I was misinformed, maybe I never thought about the scriptures, just because I've always believed it was true doesn't make it true. 
When we answer these questions as believers, we go to one source. The scripture is the Christians. The scriptures are the Christians' authority. And in this case, I don't believe that the Bible tells us that there is one person we're supposed to marry or even whether we're supposed to get married or not. The one source that really says that there's this thing called a soulmate that movies like to celebrate, it's not found in the Bible. It's found in Plato. He wrote a famous book called Symposiums, and there was a character called Aristophanes who surmised that the reason we're so desperate in dating and in romance and so intense to find someone and we find them, there's this transcendent feeling. He surmised it must have been that there was one time in the cosmic past when we were, he called it round people. By that he meant male and female together. And we became too powerful and the gods were afraid. So Zeus came up with a plan. I'm going to split them in two. And they'll spend the rest of their life trying to find their missing half. And once they find their missing half, they'll be so desperate to keep clinging to each other, they won't have time or energy left to threaten the gods. And that's what Zeus did. And lo and behold, the gods were saved. Nobody, I can't imagine a single person on the world today would accept that worldview, but we've kind of Christianized it, that, well, God is sovereign and God is providential, right? So there must be one person that he created just for me. Let me just pause why I think this matters. If you think you have to find that one out of eight billion people and that you can't be happy until you find that one out of eight billion people, it's going to make you feel a little insecure and desperate. And can I tell you, singles, there is nothing worse than being desperate in dating. All right? You don't let friends drive drunk. Don't let friends date desperate. It doesn't lead to good choices. Because from a Christian worldview, this matters. From a Christian worldview, we don't find fulfillment and happiness in a successful life by being reunited and reconciled to some cosmic person we are separated from in a distant past. We find our fulfillment, our meaning, and even our happiness by being reconciled to our creator who we offended with our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're reconciled to God. That's where we're fulfilled. That's where we're satisfied. And that's where we're happy. So we can pursue marriage or live married as happy people and not be desperate expecting that person to fulfill us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the need for every person. That's what completes us. So God not our marital status defines our life. God, not our marital status defines our life. Now we've been going through 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter seven today. We're gonna go through a lot of verses and look at how Paul, I believe, tells us the marital choice is completely up to us. Let's begin with verses eight through nine. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says, what's the reason to get married? Because God told you to? No. He's saying, if you think, I can't live a sexually responsible life as a single person, I should get busy finding someone to marry. It's not that God is telling me to. I get to make a choice. I have to reason. What are my strengths? What is a life 
that will most glorify and honor God as a single person or as a married person, I get to apply my wisdom and see with God's help, what does that mean? Now, there's no sense that Paul says you have to do one or the other. In fact, he says the exact opposite. Look at verse 25. Now, about virgins, in context, you can go look at it later. This is about virgins determining who to marry. So that's the context here. Here's his voice. I have no command from the Lord. What part of no command do we not understand there? Paul says, I can't give you a command from God. It's not about command. I've told you a wisdom, but God is not commanding you to get married or commanding you not to get married. He's saying in first century Corinth, given the times, I think you're probably better off staying single. In fact, he suggests you might have a happier life if you stay single. Look at verse 40. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, i.e. single. But all of this, this is what I really want you to capture All of this is said in a spirit of total and complete freedom. You are made in the image of God, and God lets you choose. Look at verse 35. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undevoted devotion to the Lord. He goes, I'm not wanting you to feel restricted that you should get married or that you shouldn't get married. I want you to find the life where you can best seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33, where you can most glorify God and honor God, whether that single or that married is married, that's secondary. Live a life of devotion To the Lord. And that means it doesn't matter whether you're married or not, but whether you're being faithful to serving God. Be more concerned about being intimately connected with God than even another human being. Now, that seems to me pretty persuasive, but I think the absolute argument stopper is in verse 39. And here's what Paul says in 739. After talking about freedom, Paul says this A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry. Would you please read the next three words with me? Anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Paul couldn't be clear. You get to choose. First, he says, you choose whether or not you should be married. Make that decision based on a life that most glorifies God. After you decide, okay, I want to get married, you get to marry anyone you want to marry. He explicitly states that. He says, you want to marry an introvert or an extrovert? Knock yourself out. Do you rather be married to a Tigger or an Eeyore? You get to choose. Women, do you want to marry a businessman or a poet? As long as you're willing to support the poet for the rest of your life, go ahead and marry the poet. You get to choose what matters most to you. There's one one caveat. Make sure he's in the Lord. Make sure he's a believer. I think it's so clear. Now, whenever I say this, people will say, but what about this? And they'll give me three biblical challenges. What about Adam and Eve, Isaac and Rebecca, Joseph and Mary? Fair enough. Let's deal with those. And let's go back again. Where do we find our authority? Most of you know this. If you've been around here, we talk about how to handle scriptures. But just as a reminder, biblical narratives aren't normative. Biblical narratives aren't normative. What that means, when you're reading a narrative in scripture, it tells you what happened, 
But that doesn't imply that's what you should do. It doesn't carry the weight of teaching saying, do this. It doesn't carry the weight of a command. Let me give you an example. Peter's told he's got to pay his taxes and Jesus' taxes. So he goes to Jesus, what do we do? Hey, Peter, here's what you do, Jesus says. Go fishing. Cut open the fish. You're going to find two coins, one to pay your taxes, one to pay mine. It's a narrative. There is nowhere, nobody that I know of would preach that and say, so if you're way behind in your taxes to the IRS, after you leave church, go fishing, find a fish, cut it open, and you're going to find a check inside that you can send to the IRS. Nobody thinks that that is, but, you know, it's not quite as convenient to believe that. But what about marriage? That matters more if there are examples of marriages, okay? Let me give you a narrative in Scripture about a woman who wants to get married to a particular guy. Her name is Ruth. Her mother-in-law is Naomi. She's a widow. She finds a guy. He's wealthy, a little older. His name's Boaz. He's wealthy. He would be a good match. He's of the right tribe. Everything's good. So Naomi says, all right, Ruth, here's what you do. You want to marry Boaz? Sneak into his bedroom late at night after everybody's asleep uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. And so when he wakes up, you're there. Hey, let's get married. And it worked. I don't think any single woman here, if she's interested in an older rich man, should sneak into his bedroom, uncover his feet and lay at his feet until he wakes up to let him know you're interested. That's a biblical narrative. It's not normative, all right? We, we got that, we, we're together. So let's look at those three examples, Adam and Eve. And again, I, I'm, I'm going to grant you this. If you wake up one day and realize you are the only man in the world, and guys, God puts you to sleep and you wake up and you see there's only one woman in the world who doesn't have a belly button. Think about it. And God says, you've got to be fruitful and multiply, and she's the only one you can be fruitful and multiply with. Yeah, you should marry her, all right? God told Adam to marry Eve. He told Eve to marry Adam. In a day and age in which there are almost 8 billion people on this planet, and everybody has belly buttons, I don't know that this passage should direct how we make a choice. Then we could look at Isaac and Rebekah. We know that in that time, they were a part of what is called in theology, salvation history. They were passing down a descendant and another descendant leading to the birth of the Messiah because the Messiah had to come from Jewish blood. But as Christians, that's not normative for us because we're not saved by having Abraham's blood flowing through our veins. We're saved because we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. That's what saves us. So we don't have to worry about that. But even so, if we want to make that narrative normative, the application isn't that God chose who Isaac and Rebecca were supposed to marry. Women, here's what you would be agreeing to. You ask your dad to hire a matchmaker who goes to a distant land, chooses someone for you to marry, and you marry that person sight unseen. If you'd like to do that, that's following the biblical pattern. I, I wouldn't mind for one of my daughters. If she wants me to, I'm happy to do that. But that's not what the Bible is teaching us to do. And so then we have Joseph and Mary. And again, I'll grant you this situation. Absolutely. So guys, if you wake up from a dream and there's an angel at the foot of your bed, and God tells you the woman you're engaged to is pregnant, but don't freak out. 
The Holy Spirit did it, and she's going to give birth to the Messiah. I want you to protect and raise the Messiah. Guys, you should marry that fiancé. And women, if you wake up and God says, hey, I'm going to make you pregnant, and I want you to marry Joseph, you should go ahead and marry Joseph. So that's not really relevant to us. That's not going to happen again. Am I saying God can't lead two people? No, I'm not going to put God in a box. I've talked to some people at particularly I think it's some second marriage where they just had a brutal second marriage and God opened up their eyes and they really received that spouse as a gift. But here's the thing, you get to determine whether you open that gift or not, all right? It's not that God is saying you must marry this person. I think we have to take ownership of that situation. Now, if we go out of 1 Corinthians 7, there are just a couple other passages that talk about making a wise marital choice one of those is Proverbs. Proverbs was written to young men in Israel, helping them to live a wise, successful, fulfilling life. And so it's telling men, one of the things that is so key is that you make a wise marital choice. Now, how do you make a wise marital choice? It doesn't say, wait until God tells you and use an internal impression. It says this, a wife of noble character, this is verse 10, who can find? Who can find? Not try to determine, you're pursuing it. There's some work on the young man's part. It's saying, guys, this is worth it. And it says what you're looking for is noble character. The three laws of real estate are what? I know we have some realtors in here. What are the three laws of real estate? Location, location, location. The three laws of making a wise marital choice. Character, character, character. Now the reason he's saying this to young men because he knows even 3,000 years ago, young men, they were overawed by a woman's beauty. We see a woman who's so beautiful, we, we don't look at anything else. And so he warns them, charm is deceptive and, and beauty is fleeting. He says, look, you, you, she can stop your heart and she can blind you to some real character issues. Don't let that happen. Because beauty is the least permanent thing about a person. It changes when my wife and I started dating, I had almost as much hair as she did. It's pretty cool. I could feather it back. But if she had married me for my hair, it wouldn't go so well for us now. And, and so, guys, I know it's impossible to imagine because you can't imagine a more beautiful creature on the planet. But you marry her faster than you believe. The day will come when she looks pretty much like her mom does right now. And if you don't die and you keep living, the day will come when she will look sort of like her grandmother does right now. And if you marry her for character and faith, she will be more beautiful to you and more beloved to you than on the day you got married because character grows, faith grows, beauty fades. So it says a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So a woman's faith, men, should be the main factor. Does she love the Lord? So instead of asking, is he the one or is she the one? These are better questions. Is she kind? Is he compassionate and humble? Is she unselfish? Does he zealously serve God or is he only about his own advancement and his own wealth? Is she a woman of worship and prayer? Does he love the scriptures or does he think he doesn't need any more wisdom? He has enough. 
women, I, I want to emphasize, this is for you too, not just men, how important faith is. I've told women all over the world, frankly, that of all the changes I've made in my marriage, 90% haven't come from Lisa confronting me or saying, would you please stop doing this or would you please start doing that? It's when I wake up in the morning and pray and God has an issue with me and he reminds me, Gary, Lisa isn't just your wife. She's my daughter and I expect you to treat her accordingly. Before we talk about anything else, I want to talk about your attitude last night. I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Women, if you marry a guy who doesn't pray, your only hope is nagging. Ask any wife here how effective that is. God wants you to be cherished. He wants you to be adored and loved as Christ loves the church. That's God's design for your marriage. But if you will marry a man who doesn't pray, you'll be married to a man who doesn't pray. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Please marry a man who can be convicted by God. He can't be convicted by God if he doesn't pray. The same thing, of course, is true for men. Character, 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 faith, faith, faith. Frankly, there's nothing in scripture that tells us it's our sworn duty to marry one particular person. Whether we marry and who we marry is part of God's permissive will. He says, apply wisdom. Other scriptures say, seek counsel. Make sure they're a person of faith and character. And then, yes, of course, pray. Let God slam the door. No, absolutely not. Are you crazy? Or, yeah, this could be a wise choice, but you have to own the decision. God has given it to you. You have to do the work. Presuming there's some mystical leaning that overrides wisdom is such a foolish thing to do. And when people have done it, here are the emails I receive. Here's another one. Sadly, I was one of those people who believed with all my heart that God has only one person for me to marry. I also believed that God would do the choosing. I believed it was God's will for me to marry my husband. This has had disastrous consequences. Based on all the things you outlined in the sacred search, my husband and I should not have gotten married. She thought it was true, it didn't help. She always believed it was true, it didn't help. Now, looking at the scripture, she says, I made a mistake. Now, the reason this is important for marriage is I want you to own your choice because I'm more concerned about your relationship with God than even your marriage. I don't want you to be bitter at God because if you're in a difficult marriage, you need God as your friend and your comforter and your counselor. So instead of praying, God, why did you make me marry this person? God, why did you lead me into this mess? You can pray, God, help lead me out of this mess that I've made. It's very significant that we own the choice because in, particularly if you're in a difficult marriage, you want God on your side. He wants to be on your side. He will help you. He will love you. And you have the hope that God, not your marital status, defines your life. But I want to end with this real quickly. I don't want this to look negative to singles because the reality is if, uh, while I don't want anybody to suffer the consequences of a foolish marital choice, I don't want a single, single person in this place to miss the blessings of a wise marital choice. Some of you know a few years back, Lisa had a fast-growing tumor on her lung. 
It was so scary. We went in. They were going to remove it. They said, we won't really know till we get it out what it's about. She was all ready to go under. I mean, she had the hotel gown on. They had the things in for her blood. I mean, all of that. She's in the bed. And then they came out and said, can't operate. There's another infection. We won't know what's going on. We're going to have to wait till the infection passes. It's going to be three weeks. It was brutal. Three weeks. We don't know. We don't know what's happening. It was terrible. But we had more time to get ready. And I told Lisa that second time, okay, what can I do to support you? She said, I just want two things. I want you to pray for me as I'm going under anesthesia. And when I wake up, I want you to be the one holding my hand. I want you to be the one to tell me what they found. By God's grace, it happened. I was praying for her and she was out. Several hours later, longer than they expected, she was waking up and I was there holding her hand and I could tell her, thank you, Lord. It's not cancer. And I, I say that with empathy because some of you had to say it is, but then you could say, but I will be here with you. That's what a good marriage is about. I, I, never, I thought marriage was about being young together. It's about growing old together. And you face these issues and you make a wise choice based on character and faith. And those things draw you together and make life rich where even awful things bring out heavenly feelings. I don't want you to miss that. It's work. It's not easy. But it is worth it. Let's pray.